This is Brain Fuzz, the art, music, and culture podcast with Joe Camusa and Matthew White. In a special fake news edition, Joe and Matthew Mythbust Caffeine Levels in Espresso versus Coffee, discuss Woody Allen on Amazon, reflect on a past episode, and discuss jazz, Dave Hickey, and music hero mythology. This is episode 10. I was preparing for a special brew that I wanted to do. And it got me thinking about something you told me once, that espresso has less caffeine Correct. than just a cup of coffee. Correct. Is that what you told me? That's what I've read and been led to believe all these years because of the extra roasting, apparently, in the process, that, it, that an ounce shot, which is what it should be, a single espresso should have less caffeine than a cup of coffee. Okay, so I asked somebody at the store about this, and they said yes, that you are correct. But I decided to take my fact-checking a step I further. Say, I was going to think if I'm going to go down on this one, it better be some reputable people. Well, for Brain Fuzz, we, we vet all of the news sources to filter out the fake news. Um, I found Kicking Horse Coffee, and they did a study on the caffeine levels in espresso versus drip. And here's what they say. One two-ounce double espresso shot has about 80 milligrams of caffeine. Versus 120. Versus, it says, whereas a 12-ounce brewed coffee has about 120 milligrams. All right, so it's still less. The problem is the concentration. So two ounce versus 12 ounce. Well, it's like doing a shot versus, I get that. I also sip mine. I don't shoot them. Oh, do you? Yeah, Yeah, you don't shoot. Yeah. You know, I'd like to, because it's the greatest thing in the world. I want to stretch it out as long as possible. See, when you. It's kind of like a tantric espresso. (laughs) That would be a good brand. There's a title. When you first told me that, I thought this, these, are, these, are, these are the ravings of an addict. I didn't believe you, that you were rationalizing your, your addiction. That's what I immediately thought. Well, it's also uh, dosing that way. Like I said, uh, a, a really strong espresso even sometimes, and suddenly my head is spinning. And I don't like that. I need to be able to focus. But I've got to keep the, uh, gotta keep the headache away. got to keep, while coming down, it's playing in the background. <laughs> Good said soup just keeps on giving. Yeah. So where I, where did this fake news thing all of a sudden just come out of? It seems like for those of us that hide in studios most days, it seems like it came out of complete left field. I mean, there's always been the Inquirer and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. now every two seconds, fake news, fake news. Well, it's Russians and fake news is all I'm so hearing what's, lately. What's... Russian propaganda is being propagated by the fake news websites. I think that that's the relationship. But like, what's the what's the business model for? I'm going to start for fake, news? fake news. I guess you're just funded by state uh, state interests. Maybe is that where you get your? No, but I mean, like, if you're a brand, you can... how could you be affiliated with? I mean, again, I don't even. I, I don't know. Feeling a little Amish here, but I don't listen to any of that or read it. So, but like, how are these things sustaining? I th- 
Yeah, because you're right. It's not a sustainable model. It's like the unless rent, you're getting state like support. Is the corporation sponsoring some of these? Or, uh, <laughs> and a grant from the Czech. Group. It's Halliburton. It's 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 a cartel. Oh. Halliburton, Blackwater, and uh, and well, and Diebold. Like you keep hearing that. Oh, I haven't heard. Oh yeah. The lock people. Well, but That's see, they do the voting machines. Oh wow. Oh yeah, that's what they're saying. Um, yeah. So speaking of fake news and coffee. Okay. All right. I sat down. We watched the Crisis in Six Scenes. Have you heard about this? I haven't. Okay. So it's Woody Allen's serial. Oh, I see. I have seen at least one of them. Okay. Which one did you watch? I think it was the first one where. And I'll be a spoiler, but they're they're in the house and there's an issue with the alarm. Yeah. Okay, I saw that. Okay. And I don't think I saw the next one. Because you, you chose not to continue the, watching. No, the wife was watching it. She's like, it's you. She didn't even like it. Yeah. I thought, all right. She is not alone. It had some promise. It had some promise, and according to uh, Salon. dot com, fake news or not, Salon. dot com. Yeah. I don't know what list they're on. Um, is fake also just like maybe opinion? Because I mean, is everything except for like a so-called brick-and-mortar bona fide news org? Is everything else considered now? Could it be opinion? Well, that's a good point because this this article posted on September 29th of 2016 on Salon.com um, is entitled "Woody Allen's Crisis Debacle." When the filmmaker said Amazon would regret this deal, he wasn't joking. That's the title. <laughs> so it's somewhere between news and opinion. <laughs> but it says in this, I cannot imagine a circumstance under which an Amazon customer watching the first episode of Crisis in Six Scenes would give it a high rating. I can't even imagine most people getting even halfway through it. And remember, each episode is only about 22 minutes long. And it goes on to say that even for, I think it says Woody Allen completists, they'll have trouble watching it. Well, this Woody Allen completist did watch the entire thing. And I can tell you, it got better at the end, but those first three episodes are painful. Why do you think? Well, according to this article, the big... The big criticism is that he had no experience in a serial model. Okay. And that Amazon just kind of blindly signed it, thinking, this is going to work. It's Woody Allen. And I think, I don't know, tell me what you think. Did you get that sense in the first couple of episodes that this is... Well, like I said, I only saw the first one, and it was quick. It had had enough familiarity... Just suddenly I'm thinking, like, Manhattan murder mystery. Mm -hmm. And then the other one, that's identical. Like, one has Alan Alda. I never can remember which ones. Yeah, Manhattan murder mystery is Alan Alda. What's the one with, uh... Oh, man. Um, He's like a dentist. He kills his wife. Crimes and misdemeanors, which is... Wow. Uh, So anyway, you know, it's familiar territory. And then there was also, like, a bit of, like, Broadway Danny Rose for a second in that character. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I got, you know, like my house in Connecticut and the whole bit. Yeah. So it was kind of like, all right, it's setting me up. And then, and then the wife, 
the never-ending wine bottle. Yeah. And then, I don't know. I mean, I wonder, did he just make, like, his normal thing and then just chop it up into, th- you know, like, what, what would be the difference? The, the, what you see in those first few episodes is not what you see in the end. It's almost like he, towards the end, he gets it, which leads me to believe he didn't chop it up. Oh, okay. So it doesn't. It's not a continuous story. No, it is a continuous story. Oh, all right. But see, I need. I should have watched it. I, I look. It's painful. Those. I'm. It, I don't know that. For twenty-two minutes, is painful. Six episodes at twenty-two minutes. It, it is. It is painful. And this is what's crazy. I thought about this because right after that, I had to watch Cafe Society, which is awesome, and it's part of the Amazon deal as well. Oh, okay. And it is his first film shot in digital. Oh, wow. And I'm telling you, this movie was fantastic. And it renewed my faith. It's interesting to see it, how he handles being shot in digital versus... Same cinematographer? Or did that guy... That guy passed away, didn't he? I have, like, no information. That's fine. That's what this is all about. (laughs) You know, but who was I listening to... It was a recording conversation, and, uh, you know, of course, anybody recording music is, oh, okay, you know, you're going analog, and they had a very good point, which is like, yeah, that can be really great in the studio, but eventually, you're having to dump it back at some point in yeah. the chain. It's got to right. go back to digital, because it's played through boxes, let's face it. You're right. And, uh, you know, and I think the trick is... You know, maybe, again, the sweet... The che- not cheating. The sweet spot is, uh, is some combination of... Uh, analog and digital gear yeah. to get the job done. But, um, you know, so like with film, I have to imagine that it's sexier if you can get the right film stock, etc. But, I mean, I can't imagine the, the ease comparatively and the cost savings and to be able to see things instantly. Um, but if you've been working with film your whole entire career, I mean, that's got to be a weird switch. But, I mean, I, I would think that people that are really good at it can sit, get it pretty close. There's one awkward scene, and then when what you see it... it awkward? Just watch. I, I want to see you if, you if you spot it. you it was digital, that you would have said, oh... No, that. I learned it was digital afterward. Okay, so then... I did, but there was one, one scene where it was like, oh, oh, and... And then having read that after the fact, I was like, okay, that explains it. Interesting. Yeah, but you need to see it. All right, I've got some homework then. You know, the last episode with Daniel Fuller, another fantastic discussion. Very good discussion. There could have been a part two. There still could be. We had to edit, I think we edited maybe three to four minutes out of it. And one, mainly because I was concerned about law enforcement um, <laughs> getting involved. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. Uh, the anecdote that he shared was... Um, didn't see that one coming. Didn't see that one coming. Did not see that one coming. But he, he mentioned that about um, Charlie Parker. Mm-hmm. And I had to go back and listen to some Charlie Parker and got me thinking about Dave Hickey and his love for Chet Baker to pull this all together. Now, what do you know? I know neither one of us are jazz experts by any means, but what are your thoughts on Chet Baker, Dave Hickey, Charlie Parker? These are huge questions. Um, no, I'm, a, I'm definitely... A- Chet Baker fan, but I'd say um, 
you know, I listen to a fair amount of jazz, but mostly it is from the 50s, uh, 40s, 50s, you know? Um, so I'm probably prejudiced to his earlier career, you know, like, some, like somebody who only died. How many, what? You know, it's, that's one of those things where you're like, okay, here's somebody who's had a whole career that I kind of, you know, Charlie Parker, I think, is just amazing. Um, I probably listen to more Charlie Parker than I do Chet Baker. We're going to have to fact check ourselves here. Chet Baker died in 1988. Okay, but compared to, like, like in his heyday, I mean, yeah. you know, so, like, what was, like, during the 70s and 80s, like, I was completely, obviously, not listening to much jazz and that time frame, candidly, but um, um, I don't find myself, like, my, my record collection, jazz-wise, is stuck in a, you know, I don't find myself buying um, anything remotely current just out of my own ignorance. You know, yeah. like I'm content to still kind of yeah. fill and Well, like, there's plenty. I mean, what's this? How? Yeah. You know, I mean, just... Uh, there's plenty to mine there. For me, I've always tried to avoid getting too far into golf or jazz because... <laughs> because it's just too... Once you go down that road, you know, you, need, you can't... You're going to buy... It's too much to buy. It's... You could, you know... And I'm just not... That is a great golf or jazz. Um, it's the same thing, though. Well, yeah. you know what I'm saying. Well, like I, I think I've already shared this, but I mean, like to have um, received a fair amount of records um, from my father-in-law. You know, like you know, vintage, you know, Blue Note, Miles Davis, Coltrane, etc., and and a lot of big band. Really. So I mean, there's still stuff in the collection where I can. Uh, just pull a record out and go, all right, what's, who is this? What does this even sound like? Oh, that's fantastic. Um, then there's a lot of stuff that just completely turned, you know, blew my mind. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, oh, that's, that's why this was a big deal. But I mean, I definitely, I mean, I grew up just listening to a ton of rock. Yeah. And, you know, a little bit of folk. And, well, know. I have always been partial, for whatever reason, I've always been partial to Miles Davis. And I never, you know, you got the all the references to Charlie Parker, and 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 I went back to listen to um, to listen to some, and it just it, and Chet Baker as well. I don't, it doesn't strike me like Miles Davis does, and I don't I mean, know what period of Miles are you talking? Kind of like the, the I can take the early, I can take the late, and there's something when in you it say for late, me. Late, you mean like when he saw Hendrix and Sly Stone and and came out with. Uh, um, Man, well, Bitches up. Brew yeah. is unbelievable. Okay, but I mean, that's... I can that's, take that, and I can take... Yeah. Versus Kind of Blue, or... But if I... But if I almost s- Blue. Kind of Blue. Elvis Costello is almost blue. He is sort of blue. Damn it. I can take a little... Yeah. ...bit of any Miles Davis, and it works for me. Charlie Parker, Chet Baker, I tried it, and it, it doesn't work the same for me. Well, it's definitely a different vibe. Miles can be more of a, especially the older stuff. I think it's smoother, more maybe meditative, melancholy, soundtracky, and I think maybe because we've also heard it used snippets in how many movies or you know setting. Up, speaking of like film and noir mm-hmm. um, versus, I think like Charlie Parker. I mean, that's like a, that's a performance. That's like Mingus. I mean, that's not yeah. just like yeah. let's relax on a Sunday morning with yeah. a cup of coffee and put some Mingus on. I yeah, mean, that's like. Get out of your seat. Yeah. Uh, it's like talking about what speaks to you. Sure. You know? But I mean, I, I don't know. I think, 
I'm a mood music person. I'm definitely always thinking about what's going to complement whatever I'm doing at that moment. So, so jazz, there's times where like some, like re, like some Charlie Parker, uh, or Mingus, you know, on a on a full cup of coffee or something. You know what I mean? It's like something yeah. you're just like, I can't take this. I'm gonna have a nervous breakdown. Yes, yeah, just just like or screaming loud punk or speed metal or something. I mean, there's times where sometimes that can be good. Do you recall Dave Hickey's essay in Air Guitar entitled "A Life in the Arts"? Uh, yes. That's immediately what came to mind when Daniel was talking about Charlie Parker. Because Hickey's appreciation of Chet Baker is unbelievable. I mean, it was just how he wrote that. And, and I, I would almost, I want to go back and read the essay now. I've got it right this here. This love of Chet. Pull, get it. Oh, look at that. So is this guy retired or what? How many times is he nope. retired? Yes, he is. He says he is. By abandoning the prevailing rhetoric of spontaneity for a thoughtful kind of subversive premeditation, Baker's improvisational strategy spoke less of fashionable attitudes than it did of a new way of doing things, a new ethos of living into the world, one that, a few years later, would characterize the works of Edward Ruscher, another Oklahoma boy gone California. Gosh! Ugh. Yeah. How do you do it? But, you know, there's so many different ways of looking at that, like with any musician, like, so, that's improvisational, you know, I mean, especially jazz, I mean. Yeah. Do you know the connection? No. Okay. Uh, According to another, uh, another news, another website, another Salon article, The Rise and Fall of Chet Baker, it's a review Uh of a book. He had a deep and instinctive ear for music, playing trumpet in high school, army, and junior college bands. In 1949, when he heard the Miles Davis 78s that would later be collected as The Birth of Cool, Baker connected with that style so passionately that he felt he had found the light. That same year, he was present at all-night sessions in L.A. to hear Charlie Bird Parker and was shot up with heroin for the first time. It's a good career move. It both made his career and and what I wonder is when you read Hickey's essay, cruel, yeah. when you what is it that we're falling in love with? Are we falling in love with the idea of Chet Baker, with the idea of Charlie Parker? Is it the work? What is it? What do you think? I mean, I think it's a combination of the myth and uh, and of course the the music. I mean, the the tortured artist that sells their soul. I mean, that goes back to yeah. That's in every narrative, but um, I don't know. I try to always see through that because I think the perils of trying to do anything worthwhile in a, in a creative endeavor, um, you always think somebody else was either inspired or has more talent. And we've talked about this every, pretty much every time we hit record, but um, you know, you think of the reality of how many songs that we listen to that mean so much. Like, I, again, I hate that it's overly... Uh, used, but that notion of a soundtrack, you know, to your life. But who knows what the person was actually feeling in the studio, or was that like take number twenty-seven, and they're by this point, you know, out of their mind, pissed off, tired, hungry, or God knows what else. 
you know, but it doesn't get translated. And then there's a whole other level, especially with musicians, in terms of somebody's producing it, engineering it. You know, like back then, the one thing I'd say that I fall in love with is that most of that music was a performance, first and foremost. And other people captured it. And that's not to say that people, I mean, Brian uh, Wilson is a genius in the studio, but also, but, you know, arranging and producing a variety, a number of performances, versus I guess nowadays where sometimes stuff is just pieced together, cut up, and again, done right, it can be yeah. masterful. But um, I think we are talking about an era, though, with those types of musicians where there was a bunch of people in a room and they had a limited amount of time and, and resources and they had to either, they were either getting it or they weren't. I mean, most, that's probably what appeals to me the most about a lot of the, the jazz that I listen to is like, it sounds like, it sounds live, because it is. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a couple, yeah. it's a couple yeah, microphones, right. yeah. and uh, they're not fixing it in the mix. Yeah. And uh, as somebody who's played, you know, instruments their, just about their whole life, that's, that's, it. that's what separates. Oh, it does. You know, it does. Uh, the... I mean, those, that's a real musician. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I feel bad for these people, but on some levels. But, I mean, you know, did they die for their art? I mean, I don't think there's that choice. Um, but, I mean, it's... Are, are people with an artistic temperament just more susceptible to mental illness, depression, addiction, any more so than some CPA that hates their job that's raising three kids, you know? Like, I, mm. are these myths? That's what I kind of sometimes, when I have too much time on my hands, kind of think about a little bit. I don't know what you think. I'm out of coffee. Oh, we can get more. <laughs> we, can, we can juice up some. I'm going to have to have an espresso because I'm flat. But, but I mean, what do you think about that? I, I mean, seriously. Why does there seem to be so much myth around them compared to, say, I don't know, pick, pick something current and not even in jazz, you know? And again, is it because it is 50, 60 years old or 40 years old or something? You know, is it the I think, time? I think there's time, but then I also think that you know so little about these people because of... Is blues the same way for you then? Yes. Okay, so they're mythic characters because they're, it's not like, you know, you understand Robert Plant or anybody that looks like that. So, like, are there arch- archetypes? Is yes. Is that what you're saying? So, okay, yeah. you're like, okay, I get this. This is the Sex Pistols and, and the Ramones yeah. combined to give you. All right, so jazz is more of a unique. Huh. I really do. So, but do you think also, as far as separating out the realities of whether somebody was a drug addict or, you know, like somehow they were able to make their work if it didn't kill them? You know, I mean, like the Stones, like, wow, like Keith's probably somehow, I don't know who he, who he has pictures of, but like how he was able to not only survive, I'm sure some of those stories are exaggerated, but still, to, to have that kind of creative output. Think about Johnny Cash. He captured that same mythology. Yeah. And, and cultivated it. Recording Folsom Prison, San right. Quentin. Something that was really, in, in some ways, it, the core of it is true. But that image was cultivated, sure. and, and I don't want to say manufactured. I mean, it was because it wasn't. It was cultivated, and over time, 
and, and look at it. I mean, you still hear stories, and, and you know people that maybe know a Johnny Cash story from that period, and that's part. And I think that you see that with these with these uh, jazz musicians as well. But look at look at also the time, the span of time. We got to see some bad Johnny Cash records, right? There are some bad Johnny Cash records and there are some, and then in the end he revived that whole image and... Well, or Rick Rubin. Well, Rick Rubin, yeah. Um, I did hear another interview with him though where he said he was on his mind that his label was doing absolutely nothing about the time he met Rick Rubin. Yeah. And he's like, here's this guy who comes in who like, looks like he had never cut his hair and looked like he was wearing pajamas. Yeah. And said, I want to work with you. Yep. Uh, that's interesting. Now, that's a very good point as far as like that cultivating. Because when I was a kid, I kind of remember... I mean, I remember Giant Cash. I don't know if I remember the show. If it was, I, I think it was... Maybe it was on in reruns. Yeah. But I remember this notion of him being like this outlaw, the man in yeah. black. And yeah, he still was a... If you think about it, he's a pretty wholesome character. Absolutely. And then you get... But then the, I mean, like, there's some addiction. Like, but there's... like Johnny Cash, two point... Oh, yeah. was like Merle yeah. out of San Quentin, who's, who yes. says he was at yes. one of those performances. And, yep. uh, fascinating. So, speaking of mythologies, along these lines, I've also returned to Sun Ra. And reached out to somebody yesterday and I think we'll be talking with somebody I know soon. exactly who you've talked to then. Sun Ra, I have to say, is up there with... Connect with Joe and Matthew and find out more about this and other episodes at BrainFuzzPodcast.com On social media, share your thoughts and comments with hashtag BrainFuzzPodcast Now, go be discursive. <laughs>